I remember this being a childhood dream for our dad who kept saying you should write a book and I should illustrate it. So yes. I don't know why Yaku had to go write one. I'm waiting for yours. Yeah, Yaku beat me to it. Fuck. My name is Laomi and this is Cat Ladies Who Read. <laughs> so Laomi, I was at a book launch last week. So was I. I know you were because <laughs> you were on the stage at the book launch. Yeah, so I was at a book launch for Yaku Adrianza's book Adamastor City, which is the first of three parts in the Metronome series. Um and I was there because I illustrated it. It was amazing. It was really fun to be at the launch and it was fun to see you speak. So, at the launch, um Yaku actually did give us an synopsis of the book and we have a, we have a recording of that and the quality isn't great because it is a live recording uh, but we're going to play the clip of the synopsis so it's a bit of a weird project but the story itself is essentially a story of a young little boy who runs away from home so as a companion he has his little robot friend the idea obviously this is a bit of futurism the idea is that in the future our toys will play back with us right So this little robot is kind of his companion, his friend, his toy and kind of his protector and they run away from home. They are bored by the lifestyle their parents have given them. Their parents seem to have been checked out of life completely and stopped caring. Um and they shoot up a little prayer uh asking the universe for some guidance. There has to be more than this. Uh it can't just be all cocktail parties and kind of crappy lounge music and the universe hears their prayer and sends them on a quest. It was really exciting to read this book because I haven't read anything like it. Um and I also I love reading sci-fi but as most sci-fi and fantasy fans know it's very hard to find local versions. Mm. Everything seems to be happening in dystopian America. So yeah, it's really cool to see a Cape Town that is familiar and not. And don't be intimidated by the fact that it's written in verse. It's really easy to read and It's it's just like a fun rollicking adventure. So it really is. It's funny, it's it's fun to read. It's imaginative, it's playful. Um there's a lot of really cool characters. Yeah. So how did you get involved in this book? So the publisher of the book, Robbie, is a friend of a friend of mine who I studied with. and they had about 3 weeks before the book had to get printed Your if they 3 <laughs> weeks yeah they wanted to get it out before christmas and they didn't have anything and he was telling this to my friend john and he, john said well i have a friend maybe if you like her work you should ask her if she's keen so i got an email um i got some phone calls and Robbie sent me the book and said I should just read it. He's like it's a sci-fi set in Cape Town. It's in verse. We have 3 weeks. I need 11 illustrations. And I was like, well, I have a full-time job, but sure, <laughs> I can manage. Yeah, yeah, it was a tough 3 weeks. You were working kind of late hours during that time to get it done. Yeah, but deadlines, they're like the only way to get anything done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you did get it done. So there's a number of characters that you've illustrated here. So there's the little boy and his robot. The robot is um, Umlilo and the boy is Aize. So one thing I noticed about the the, the robot, yes, is that he looks like kind of kind of like a a sassy toddler. <laughs> But it it makes So what makes sense about it is that Yaku's writing is extremely humorous. Like yeah. if you read it like some of it is it's really laugh out loud funny and Umlilo's character characterization is so 
funny and cute. Also, like, it, I feel like it comes out more and more like Aize wants to go on an adventure and Umlilo's like, let's blow everything up. And they all just try and sort of calm him down and like, okay. So Umlilo is just this, like, this radical spirit. Yeah, and it's child's toy that looks a little bit like a, I don't know, vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Listen, just watch your wine because Hero is <laughs> out and about. She's knocking things over. Yeah. So I guess the, the text gives you certain visual clues mm. uh, about what the character should look like and also what how they should be characterized. Like, what is the, the personality inhabiting that physical person? Um, so how did the, the visual clues work with some of the other characters? So I really love the space beasts. Like those oh my two. God. <laughs> That's literally my favorite thing about every illustration. Yaku, I can't remember if he's told me in the brief or in the book about how they're made of star stuff. And I just really loved that image of them being this like completely dark background with the stars like sort of giving them shape. And I, I really enjoyed incorporating him in the different worlds. Like the first picture where they're congealing out of the universe mm. that was like very congealing, much good word <laughs> that's very much in the text so even if you quickly glance at the first illustration which is the boy and his robot sitting in a st- on a staircase and it looks like you know they're surrounded by stars if you look quickly and then if you look again you see the wolf and the bird coming out of the stars like you you see those shapes but you could almost miss them mm. if you didn't if you didn't look quickly enough it's like that's why the, the space beats are my favorite like they're this atmospheric um, and they really look like they're moving in from another dimension like they're like pushing into the night sky in the book there's this image that he wrote that the the static has this image of like a feather or like a tuft of tail I actually have it here right now I'm gonna read it quickly when the security tapes were eventually checked the police had sent their finest detective they found the footage completely wrecked the tape just showed a storm of feathers over a garbled howling invective yeah, so like his his writing is very vivid. Mm. So it's not that hard to like imagine something coming out of it. And yeah. that, I really like that. So if you look in the left hand corner, you'll see the wolf's face oh my God. and his paw coming out. And if you look on the other side, there's the bird like sort of in the shape of a static. One thing that struck me, and it struck me actually especially with these space beasts, is the the balance you achieve between detail and simplicity. So overall, there is a simplicity to the drawings. Like there's often, the, there, there's only outlines. Um, some of the pictures are, are only outlines with no shading at all. Mm. But on the other hand, like if you look closely, there's actually quite a lot of detail. Um, and that level of detail made me think about Chris Riddell. Mm-hmm. who illustrated the Edge Chronicles, which we read as kids. I was so obsessed with him. I mean, I still follow him on Instagram. God, but he's cool. He, I think he's literally the reason why I started drawing in the first place. Because really? I wanted to draw like he drew, and then I just car- carried on drawing. That and DeviantArt. So. Yeah, DeviantArt. <laughs> Thank you, DeviantArt and yeah. Chris Riddell for... <laughs> yeah, our nascent art careers that started on, on DeviantArt. Mine as well. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, okay, so... The difference for me between you and Chris Riddell is that, so Chris Riddell, I mean, literally everything is detail, right? Mm. Like there's this excess of detail. It's like it, the picture can barely contain all the all the detail that's in there. Um, I wouldn't describe any of his stuff as having any simplicity. Mm. But you have this this balance where like some of the work is is extremely detailed and yet the the characters still come from outlines. Mm. Like the the space beats beats have all these stars inside them, but they but they're basically still an an outline. Um, and I just find that very 
like interesting and, and beautiful about your work. Like it's really lovely to look at. Can you s say some more about th this combination? Um, so I think like one of the things I was a bit worried about is that it is a small book. So mm. because the book is small, I didn't want to um, put in too much detail because like it gets lost when the, the image is made too tiny. Um, and in that sense, I also didn't want to have any grayscale because like once you start with like washes, like it has a different effect and it also can like print really dark and I don't know, like it's it's just a little bit harder to manage. Mm. And I also, I do struggle when I'm using like grayscale washes, I feel like I struggle to like not make things like super realistic. Yeah. And I didn't want to like get caught into that thing where I'm trying to paint everything realistically. I, I wanted to stylize it because it's it's the thing that made the most sense for the format and the time frame and like what I'm most comfortable with. And I also think like, I'm quite inspired by lately by like prints like liner cuts and mm. wood cuts because that's also that sort of thing it's like these planes of black because I don't like the cross hatching so much because that's yeah. also something that Chris Riddell does but I really like the like the fine lines and like the planes of black and the white like that's something that you would be able to do on a print like a liner mm. cut as well so I think in that sense you have to you have to I had to boil it down to just black and white and yeah. then figure out what I can do in that space that isn't too hyper real. Yeah. I also I mean I guess with your other work, you tend not to do hyper realistic mm -mm. faces especially no. or people especially. And you're also a tattoo artist, so that kind of outline I mean tattoo artist. <laughs> I mean I have a tattoo on my body from you, so don't call yourself not a tattoo artist. <laughs> um but I mean, but your pictures are still very detailed and it's usually in the patterns. Like it's yeah. usually in their clothing or the fabric that they're lying on or something about the background. So I guess it is actually a trend in your work. But it's a lot more meditative to do a repeat pattern on someone's yeah. shirt where you're just drawing the outlines. Whereas like if you're trying to shape something into a three-dimensional figure, that takes a lot of time and effort. Yeah. And if you get it wrong, then suddenly someone's one boob is on their shoulder <laughs> and the other one is on their belly button and it's everyone notices it yeah, yeah. but I guess like that, that thing is still in, in here where like the space beasts are carved out of the pattern of the sky like it's mm. still it's, it's, it's like an outline on a pattern mm. the other thing I wanted to ask you about like the specific character of the drawings is the way in which some inanimate objects and all of the natural objects have a life of their own. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about like that scene you were talking about earlier where Alwyn encounters the space beast yes. and they're sitting on a tree and the tree looks like it's, it looks like it's actively growing. It looks like it's <laughs> growing before Alwyn's eyes and it looks like the grass around it is like, is moving and it looks, it looks like the, the natural world is participating in the narrative and that they have their own characterization and their own like animating life force Mm -hmm. um, so I was just curious about that. Like, was there a thought process behind that? I don't think so. I think that just happened. So, like, I think because the beasts are, like, coming out of things, there is a sense of movement. Mm. And also, like, this book is quite action-packed. There's a lot of, like, yeah. people running away from bombs and, like, getting dragged through stuff. I don't know. It's 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 a wild ride. So I think... The book has a lot of movement. It's also jumping from like one scene to the next quite quite a lot. So that's that's something that like might be part of it. And I think also in general when you're drawing, you have to 
you can't just have everything super symmetrical because it becomes static mm. and that isn't balanced. So I like the I like to sort of create like a flowing shape through the composition. I guess like that's like because it's a moment happening and you're trying to capture that moment, you're trying to present that it's busy happening. Right. And you're just glimpsing like a, a part of it. It's not like you, you know, a family photo and everyone's stopped and everyone's mm. standing there. I think that's like the Adam Astor one is like the most static for me. Oh, and here is in the washing basket. Oh. <laughs> and her hat. <laughs> so the story ends with a retelling of the myth of Adam Astor. Um, and that illustration is, is like especially incredible to me because I don't even think I had like imagery to back it up, like back up this this myth of Adam Astor. Um, but what you've done here is you've drawn a landscape of Cape Town where every major part of the landscape is a different titan or, I mean, what is Thetu? She's a, the daughter of a, a god. She's an ocean, she's a oceanological. She's an oceanological, yeah. <laughs> so, so every feature of the landscape is... Is, is characterized. I just imagine it being such a difficult conceptual thing to do to get from this thing which is so abstracted mm. to a concrete visual. That part in the book, it is it is very animated. Like you do get a, a much better sense of like these titans and these rocks as mm. living, moving things. Um, but that was also something that me and Yaku discussed a lot was that picture but basically what I did was I got some like helicopter slash drone images of Cape Town just so I could get that landscape right. Okay. So there is like a photo that I found online coming from the seaside, just capturing that bay semi from the top. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of see in the distance and then like mixing that with the story. So I sort of drew the outline and then try to fit the uh. shapes of the people into that space. Um, and they first just looked a lot more like people. And then Yaku sent me a lot of reference images that I can't remember who the artists were, but it's very like these moving rock beasts. Mm. And then I try to fight, like repeat that texture almost okay. um, onto these people. Uh, at the launch, Yaku gave some gave an introduction as to how he came to the name Adamasa City and the significance of the myth. And once again, we have a clip of him describing that. So we can actually play that clip. The backstory is that Adamastor is one of the original titans. They also call him the genius of the Cape, so I'm not sure why exactly, but he's one of the original titans. Um, and he tried to run away with the daughter of one of the gods. Uh, her name was Thetis. He tried to essentially abscond with her, kidnap her, and, and run away. Um, and as punishment, the, the gods uh, trapped him here at the tip of Africa as this giant monstrous piece of rock. So he became this emblem of the Cape of Storms for the travelers who were coming by and they called him Adamastor. So during the launch, actually, Yaku mentioned something about putting it to music or someone asked something about putting it to music. It was it, a question from the audience that, that said, because it's in verse, would you consider yes. it being with music because it's very musical in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of fired up our imaginations and we decided to do a reading of just the retelling of the myth. It's not a spoiler. It doesn't have that much to do with the plot per se. It's mm-hmm. just Yaku's retelling of the myth. Um, so we're going to play a piece now where I read that retelling. It's the, it's an interlude in the text. Um, and then our producer, Andre put it to music. So we're going to let that roll. Yaku, I hope you like it. <laughs> <laughs> 
The story goes that, in the beginning was the word, and the word was bang, followed by the riotous rattling and calamitous clang, as the fundamental orchestra warmed up for the music of the spheres, and the song about everything that can happen to energy given a bajillion years. The early epochs were wild and abstract as the energies raged and the arrow of time was let fly. Everything phase shifting and chrono drifting, even an experiment with an orange colored sky. But once causality was up and running, things could happen. So matter condensed and slowly coagulated in massive globes, furiously fusing and internally incensed. And once the stars had turned on the light show, it was only a matter of more matter gathering in their warm glow gyrating gently through the tugs and swells, staring slack-jawed and star-struck while silting up their space-time warping gravity wells. On one of those matter globes, in a dusty galactic nook, in the wild youth of this little lump of rock rotating slightly a crook, there awoke elemental forces, so earning their entry in the book. With particular particles pulsing to the patterns of purpose, and waves welling and common synchronicities from the deep to the surface, when everything was arranged just so, and a few billion days had felt the burn of the sun's golden bow. There, rising from the elementary gloop, the ancients of days waking up to the taste of soul noodle soup. For countless millennia, they remained new to the notion of meaning, and spent their time innocently, half-conscious, half-dreaming, slowly putting together some of the basics, like ambling around, bonus points if you could do it without dragging your knuckles on the ground, and embedding sense into their ever-growing repertoire of sound. But once they figured out how to tap the noodle and how to wield a soul, it didn't take them long to turn on each other in misguided attempts to assume incompetent control. It was in this age that the mighty mountain called Adamaster, with body of solid granite and innards of red alabaster, trudged the land in tremendous bounds, stomping through lava landscapes and breaking the freshly congealing surrounds. Adamaster walked alone, but not through his own volition, you see. He couldn't just shake a violent, antisocial condition. He really couldn't stand his own conversation all that much, but also completely lacked the extrovert's outstretched touch. And so, well into his middle-aged millions, he still had no one on which to call, and his lists of friends and allies added up to Bogorol. He was too strong, perhaps, or too clumsy, or too dumb. But no matter how hard he tried not to fee, fi, or foe fun, and no matter how hard his fight to stay off the magma rum, it seemed like trouble and cataclysm grew evergreen over the angry aeons of the long, long life he'd seen. One bloody day, after a short debate around a continental snack plate, a bunch of the other geologicals came to agree that, considering his problematic propensity to leave behind calamity, perhaps Adamaster shouldn't be allowed to roam quite as free. So they did what any band of irresponsible schemers would do, quickly finished the last of the primordial stew, then started plotting three murders, a setup, and a coup. The plan was simple enough. Step one, bamboozle some chumps with a triple bluff. Step two, orchestrate a fight that gets murderously tough. Step three, finish off the survivors and steal all their stuff. The rest was left more or less open-ended. When working in geological time, plans are inevitably amended. Though the process obviously involved divvying up the plunder, with everyone promising to remain calm and not to start grabbing. Then after assessing who the power shift brought up and who went under, a silent consensus left an inconspicuous window ajar for some quality last-minute backstabbing. 
Under the auspices of an invitation for the making of long overdue amends, Adamasto was invited over for what he hoped was a chance to finally make some friends. But whether because of nerves or the hollow but convincing display of civility, Adamasto kept emptying his frequently filled cup until the dulling darkness touched his every facility. And he was exactly how they wanted him, nice and liquored up. However, despite drinking enough ambrosia to fill a lake, Adamasto suffered from wild capacities impossible to slake and remained to everyone's horror, somehow, if barely, awake. This was a bit of a problem for the grimy geologicals, as they had planned the whole thing around the death of one of the oceanologicals. Thetu was her name. A watery woman with starfish eyes and a coral smile, and, as they had heard, with the king for her father, on the verge of going senile. She had been seen hanging out with a mountain, washing up to say hi, then sticking around and giggling at the fountain. The plan was to kill her, and only then warn the king of danger to the life and limb of his daughter. Off his throne and out of his element, like a liquid lamb to the slaughter, he would find her dead, his youngest and most dear, and covered in her spilt waters, Adamasta drunk up to his one good ear on Godbeer. And as the father's gut-wrenching grief turned to a beating beyond belief, the idea was that Adamasta would get broken down to the last bone. And then, to kill a third bird with the same stone, they would finish off the old king, then go play musical chairs with his throne. So one took a fault line to find the king in the watery deep. One to coax Thetu back just as her moon began calling her to ebb to sleep. The rest had stuck around to do light mingling and pretend heavy drinking. But their hope that Adamasto would go down easy was going up in flames and fast sinking, as he was still propped up by his bloody-mindedness and the last dregs of what anyone would call thinking. As Thetu came flowing against her mother moon's pool, no small thing considering she still hung pretty close and that night was full, the conspirators knew that they had to get this assassination on track, fatally stab her where she swam and get the brute on his back. But one does not walk the world alone for an eternity without picking up frequencies on the wireless extrasensory. And from where he was, drunk enough to be down on one knee, Adamaster put up his titanic dukes though he could barely see. The geologicals, having to freestyle a bit, decided to light the fight early. Adamasta still gets the blame, and once the fuse is well and truly lit, they would drag it out and let the dethroned king kill him when he came. But what these ancient schemers so fatefully forgot, which would prove to be a critical oversight in the unraveling of their plot, was that Adamasta had been in more battles drunk than not. To cut an aeon-spanning fight scene short, suffice it to say, there are several geologicals who will forever regret that day. On a good one, you can still see the whole fight unfold. Adamasta in the middle, having just broken a chokehold, he's got two of them by the throat and lifted to their toes, and stretching behind him to the peninsula's tip, a dozen more of his foes in various states of disrepair, and bemoaning a broad spectrum of woes. Because when you brawl with Adamasta, anything goes. And so the story has been left for now. Over the millennia ahead, those living under the mountain will see how Adamasta will perhaps pull himself together enough to stand, or to be beaten to rubble and reduced to sand, while Thetu, having been spared a knife to the back and an untimely end, perpetually washes against Adamasta's shores to help him defend. For now, the mighty mountain is bloodied but far from broken, catastrophically inebriated but with furies well and truly awoken. And so the storytellers usually conclude 
perhaps throwing in an ominous question about what the king would do when he showed up after the interlude. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cat Ladies Who Read. Luami, I'm going to ask you to plug your work. Oh my word. Okay, so follow me on Instagram. <laughs> uh, my handle is at luami.carlitz. And we will be posting all the illustrations on Cat Ladies Who Read. And you can also just buy your own copy of the book. It's at the book lounge where I work. But it's also at most of the other bookstores in the country. Amazing. I have my own copy. It's already well-thumbed. Just from staring <laughs> very close, at very close range at your illustrations. Um, I recommend it. I think everyone should buy it. Uh, so thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Meow, meow. meow. <laughs> <laughs>